0: NUCLEAR HISTORY Many of us grew up in the 1950s and 60s, when fears of the atomic bomb permeated our daily lives with an ongoing existential dread. But that history has faded into obscurity, and today's kids, and sometimes even their parents, have barely heard the words Hiroshima and Nagasaki, let alone understand what they represent. How do we teach what happened there to children who know nothing about the atomic bombings of these two cities so they can have a context for not only understanding the events of 77 years ago, but today's nuclear weapons, nuclear reactors, and the entire nuclear fuel chain? And how much can we realistically expect 6th graders, 11 and 12 year olds, to actually understand when much of the source material is based upon a college level course? Well, if your nuclear educator, Dr. Yuki Miyamoto, who has been watching these children implement a curriculum she helped to develop to introduce the A bomb history of Japan to grade school children, and she reports
1: back to you. There is an article entitled Racist Foundation of Nuclear Architecture. And one of the students was using this term during the discussion. You know, we have to think about the racist foundation of nuclear architecture. And I was totally blown away. The discussion level was very high, and there were four or five different groups in one classroom. And there's one group which was actually supporting dropping the bomb, but even so, when other groups were making good arguments, they were supporting it. And the conclusion was everyone was saying we shouldn't have dropped the bomb. So that was the consensus.
0: Well. If an educational program in public schools about nuclear has the power to use the facts to help children make their own conclusions about exactly why nuclear bombs are not a good idea at all, ever, anywhere, then perhaps there is hope that before we blow ourselves to kingdom come, there might be a way out of that terrible, horrifying seat that we all share. at what can be done to combat nuclear ignorance. We talk with Dr. Yuki Miyamoto, a second-generation hibakusha, daughter of an atomic bomb survivor, and a professor at DePaul University, where she teaches nuclear discourse and environmental ethics. And Aiko Kojima-Hibino, a board member of Raise Your Hand for Illinois Public Education, the nonprofit that engages, informs, and empowers parents to protect and strengthen public education for all children in Chicago and Illinois. Together with two sixth grade teachers, they developed an age appropriate curriculum for grammar school children to learn in depth analysis of the atomic bomb drops on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's quite the achievement. We will also have nuclear news from around the world. Linda Pence-Gunter with the Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story, Numbnuts of the Week for Outstanding Nuclear Boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than is relevant to the voting for Fat Bear Week at Katmai National Park in Alaska. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, October 4, 2022, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. In Russia and Ukraine, the nuclear heat is rising, at least in terms of what's being communicated. In a speech to the Russian populace on September 21st, President Vladimir Putin said, In the event of a threat to the territorial integrity of our country and to defend Russia and our people, we will certainly make use of all weapon systems available to us. And he added, This is not a bluff. Our independence and freedom will be defended, I repeat, by all systems available to us. Joseph Cirincione, author of Nuclear Nightmares, Securing the World Before It is Too Late, wrote for the Washington Post, We should believe Putin that, quote, this is not a bluff. The first use of nuclear weapons in a conflict is an integral part of Russian military doctrine, as it is in U.S. war plans. Unlike the United States, Russia regularly practices for the use of nuclear weapons and integrates them into its conventional military exercises. Russian military writings describe in detail how, if Russia is losing a conflict, it could use nuclear weapons to force its enemy to retreat. This escalate-to-de-escalate strategy is somewhat controversial, but not dissimilar to various U.S. plans for using nuclear weapons first. Sirinchoni closes by writing, If you are worried... You are having the appropriate reaction. And in Russia, a convoy transporting equipment for Russia's nuclear weapons program has sparked fears that Vladimir Putin could be preparing a test to send a signal to the West. A train operated by the secretive nuclear division was spotted in central Russia over the weekend, heading towards the front line in Ukraine. Russian weapon systems include 4,477 deployed and reserved nuclear warheads, with about 1,900 of these being non-strategic warheads, otherwise known as tactical nuclear weapons, which are so-called low-yield, but still at the low end, approximately the same size as the bombs exploded in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In Florida, in the wake of Hurricane Ian's devastation, The good news is that the hurricane did not impact any of the nuclear plants in North Carolina or South Carolina. But flash floods are still possible across all Florida with hazards including the polluted leftovers of Florida's phosphate fertilizer mining industry with more than 1 billion tons of what's called slightly radioactive waste, that's like being partially pregnant, contained in enormous ponds that could overflow in heavy rains. Hurricane Ian caused devastation in Florida last week, yet one 100% solar-powered town modeled exactly the path we must take—renewables, not nuclear—as it survived Ian virtually unscathed. Here's a further report from Linda Pence-Gunter in this week's Nuclear Hot Seat
2: Hot Story. Although there is constant talk about what we must do to prevent climate change destroying our lives and our planet, it is, of course, already happening. Everything we are doing now is already too late to stem off the worst effects. Nothing brought this home more clearly than the devastation wreaked last week by Hurricane Ian as it ravaged Florida's Southwest coastline. But Hurricane Ian also gave us another demonstration of resiliency and survival. And that happened in a Florida community called Babcock Ranch, located just a few miles northeast of Fort Myers, much of which was virtually flattened by Ian. Babcock Ranch is a town that is powered 100% by solar energy, and the solar array that powers it, consisting of 700,000 panels, is right there on land adjacent to the town itself. So while the area's hardest hit by Hurricane Ian lost power, water, and communications connections, Babcock Ranch carried on as normal, dealing only with downed trees and lost roof tiles for the main part, it was the perfect demonstration of exactly what we need to do. Locally generated power not reliant on large, inflexible thermoelectric generators and vulnerable, unreliable grids. It was also a reminder that had any nuclear power plant been in the direct path of Hurricane Ian, it would have had to shut down for safety reasons. But the solar array at Babcock Ranch just went right on powering the town, which became a refuge for others fleeing the coastal devastation. Will we learn this obvious lesson modeled so perfectly for us in the midst of the climate crisis that is so clearly upon us right now? What will our members of Congress say now when we point out the success of Babcock Ranch versus their ridiculous, expensive, dangerous and far off pipe dreams of small modular nuclear reactors that they keep pushing and will likely and myopically continue to do so? What part of here, now and working can they not see about solar energy? What part of not here now might never be, likely won't work and will cost the earth, do they not see about small modular nuclear reactors? Babcock Ranch was the brainchild and initiative of a former professional American football player, Sid Kitson. According to CNN, Kitson chose to stay in Babcock Ranch during Hurricane Ian to see how the town would do. After it did just fine, he declined interviews and set off instead to help out less fortunate communities. That's the kind of civic-minded, eco-conscious leadership we need from our elected officials. Blind, obstinate adherence to a nuclear-powered future, into which our misguided politicians continue to pour, and for that, read squander, our tax dollars, isn't leadership. It's betrayal, not only of their constituents, but of all of us. There are some important elections coming up. Please remember to vote. And let's choose candidates who have a truly green, socially just, and plain sensible vision for our energy present. Because that climate emergency we keep preparing for is here now. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat. And that's this week's hot story. In Japan,
0: in the latest wave of objections to plans to dump radioactive water from Fukushima Daiichi into the Pacific Ocean, The South Korean government has asked the International Atomic Energy Agency for thorough verification of Japan's plan to discharge the water. At the United Nations, the president of Micronesia denounced Japan's decision, and now they're running out of space to store the radioactive sludge that has been filtered out as part of this process. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first, how do we get to a nuke-free future? As you'll hear from this week's featured interview, it starts with education about all aspects of nuclear. That's what our interviewees are instrumental in bringing to school children. And that's what Nuclear Hot Seat brings to you every week. We cover the entire nuclear fuel chain, from uranium mining on mostly indigenous lands, to the manufacture of nuclear weapons and reactor fuel, to the known health dangers of living near a nuclear reactor, to the forever legacy of radioactive waste from all of the above. And what are we up against? A financially well-funded nuclear industry PR propaganda push that spends more at lobbying lunches with legislators in a week or two than, well, the annual operating budget of Nuclear Hot Seat. And that's why we need your support. Nuclear Hot Seat is the only podcast where you can reliably get a one-hour hit of honest nuclear information every week. We bring you the stories and insights that the nukesters would rather you not know. So if you've come to value Nuclear Hot Seat, we need you to help support the show's work. And that means we're asking you for a donation, and the time to send it to us would be right now. Any and every amount helps. How about five dollars? Now, that is the same as a cup of overpriced coffee here in the U.S. Maybe buy us a cup of coffee a month, $5 a month, or more, individually or on an ongoing basis. Help keep Nuclear Hot Seat up and running so we can provide you with cutting-edge information on all things nuclear. And it's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the red Donate button, follow the prompt, and do what you can to help. Donate what you can now. And know that however much you can help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. It's a challenge to find nuclear stories that offer even a faint ray of hope towards our shared planetary future. Which is why I was delighted to learn about a nuclear education program that is now available for public grammar and high school students in Illinois and possibly beyond. That's up to you, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Today, I talk with two of the women who collaborated to bring this program about. Dr. Yuki Miyamoto is a second-generation hibakusha, daughter of an atomic bomb survivor. And she's a professor at DePaul University in Chicago, where she teaches nuclear discourse and environmental ethics. And Aiko Kojima Hibino a board member of Raise Your Hand for Illinois Public Education, a nonprofit that engages, informs, and empowers parents to protect and strengthen public education for all children in Chicago and Illinois. Together with two sixth-grade teachers, they developed an age-appropriate curriculum for grammar school children to learn in-depth analysis of the atomic bomb drops on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I spoke with them on October 1st, 2022. Yuki Miyamoto and Aiko Kojima Hibino, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Aiko, let's start with you. You were instrumental in developing a curriculum to teach school children about nuclear issues in Japan. What started you on this path and when did it happen? I
3: don't take the credit just for myself. Every time Yuki introduced me in such a way, I always really our you know joint idea is you know we are co-founded together. So I just you know don't claim the credit for that. But how it started, I am very much involved in advocacy of public education in Chicago. So Chicago public school system. And because of that, I read this education-specific newspapers. It's called Chokebeat. So if you are interested in education problems, it's very likely you read that newspaper. But in that beat, I think it was 2019, the one story outside of one Chicago public school, high school, they found that a bunch of books were discarded in the dumpster. And the point of that story was the Chicago public schools, like any other public school systems, suffer from chronic disinvestment and lack of resources. Most of the schools in Chicago public school systems don't have a librarians. So they had to allocate the limited resources, the personnel's inside of the school building to do things. So that story was questioning about the lack of resources, you know, the non-existence of librarians. On the other hand, there are so many schools, so many kids who don't have access to books, the quality books. So how you discard the books while there's this, you know, kids who cannot get the books, but both happened because of this you know, lack of the resources, because of this disinvestment.
0: So that was the point of that story. And there was a picture that came with that story that really impacted you. What was it that was shown in the picture? The picture associated with that story shows mostly
3: two titles, The Great Gatsby and The Bunch of Hiroshima by John Hersey. Many, many copies of Hiroshima. It was not very much just the point of that story. So people didn't really discuss about that. Why this book? It was just the books they don't use anymore. The books the students don't check out anymore. But the picture was very striking to me because Gatsby is important too, but uh, Hiroshima means a lot to me, to us. So I you know reached
0: out to Yuki, hey, did you see this? Yuki, what was your response when you spoke with Aiko and when you became aware of the photo and what it represented in terms of the discarding of the book Hiroshima?
1: The photo was very shocking to me because that is about the massive people's lives lost. That's the story and people who are suffering from radiation exposure as aftermath of dropping the bombs. So that was discarded. The orange covers were very pronounced in the massive, this damp star. So I was very shocked, but also shocked that this story was very much irrelevant to the contemporary. And it seems to me that it is very relevant because the atomic bombing and subsequent nuclear arms race and radiation exposure, that's very much contemporary issues such as the environmental issues, gender issues. It seems to me that it all covers or touches upon every aspect of our lives. Yet, there are dozens of copies were discarded as if it is irrelevant. But to do a little bit of justice to, as Aiko was talking about, a little bit of justice to the librarians, you know, the shortage of budget, but also Hiroshima is available online. However, nonetheless, they don't have to discard all those books. They can donate to communities or other places. But what shocked me the most is this issue is made irrelevant.
0: Meaning the issue of the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki.
1: Right. And then also subsequent issues of nuclear weapons and radiation exposure. And just to put this
0: into the conversation, I know we've spoken before, Yuki, about the fact that you are from Hiroshima. And that your mother, I believe it was, was very close to ground zero when the bomb was detonated.
1: Yes, she was a mile away from the Hypo Center. She was six years old back then.
0: So this is, besides being a political issue and an educational professional one, it's also personal to you.
1: Yes, I would say so, because I was growing up witnessing her suffering from radiation exposure or aftermath of the atomic bombings. And no family members or no one should experience this, not just as a sufferer, but also a member of the families of the sufferers years and years after the incident.
0: So Aiko, the two of you are in conversation with each other. What did you decide to do? How did you decide to move forward to do something about this? The picture was
3: very shocking at the same time because of this context the budget cut and this, you know public schools uh, systems i didn't feel that it was with mal malintention of the people you know have done that but it was more like you know people didn't really know about it now there are lots of debates about you know what books can be read, but books cannot be taught. You know, it's a very national wide issue, but I don't think this was uh, you know one of those things. It was more like you know they just wants to make a room, they just wants to allocate personnel you know, effectively, and then in that context, that books was just you know taking up the space and the things, and because people didn't read it, because nobody really teach about it, so that's why it was just chosen. So to me, it was more like this indifference and maybe ignorance. That's the key here. And then when I uh, actually posted on my social media, on my Facebook page, people actually reacted with the sympathy. Oh, this is that. This shouldn't happen. It shouldn't be that way. So I felt a little bit optimistic. If we could start something to educate, to make an opportunity for people to learn about the significance of this book, it will like a ripple effect. This will go more positively. I would say I was very much optimistic about this. So Yuki and I, you know, first, you know, very casually, maybe, you know, we can start like a curriculum to teach elementary, even if, you know, this was found in high school, but because I'm more involved in elementary schools advocacy, so maybe, you know, we can start something at the elementary school levels, maybe middle school levels, it started with a very casual conversation based on the optimism.
0: Yuki, how did the two of you proceed to actually develop this as a curriculum?
1: We first started, as Aiko was talking about, we were casually talking about it's probably too late. You know, I'm teaching at college, but at college level, it seems a little bit too late to speak about the atomic bombing 101 or nuclear weapons or radiation exposure 101. So we were talking about maybe earlier would be good. And she happened to know very good teachers, two teachers who were very engaged in social justice issues. And she was thinking, well, maybe we can talk to them so that they might be interested in teaching, building a curriculum together. And that's how it started. She introduced me to these two teachers. And this is my experience as well. When I started teaching bomb Discourse 20 years ago, At least one third of the students have read John Horsey's Hiroshima in high school, but now they don't even know the title, Hiroshima, or they never heard of Hiroshima or John Horsey. So that's another reason that we probably needed to approach the younger generation before they get to college. And thanks to ICO's connection, I got to know these two teachers who are dedicated themselves to teaching social justice issues. One teacher is social science, and she was eager to talk about critical race theory. And that's also not just atomic bombing, but nuclear issues, radiation exposure. This also has to do with the issue of race. So this is perfect. And another teacher is a science teacher who wants to focus on nuclear energy. That's also perfect for us because we just don't want to stop teaching at the atomic bombings as a historical event. We also want to talk about contemporary implications of that historical event.
0: How did you approach an appropriate way to teach, as you're talking about it, grammar school children? I believe you were focusing initially on sixth graders because of these two teachers. How did you determine the best ways to approach the subject of Hiroshima, Nagasaki, perhaps Fukushima, and nuclear energy itself in a way that would be accessible and appropriate to children of that age? First of all,
3: we started with the premise that they know nothing or very little about this history, this specific history, or even about Asia, or even about Japan. Maybe, you know, many students don't even know where it locates. World War II history is not required in the elementary school. So they don't know the World War II history specifically either. So we really have to start with that premise. But at the same time, I was very confident that once they get a hook, it will be very easy because these students, and especially this school, they are very eager to teach. And the students are also very eager to engage in social justice issues, and especially the critical race theory, environmental justice, gender equality. All those social justice issues that are very passionate about this education. So for me, this nuclear history, the nuclear issues and the radiation victim, all those things are very similar to what they have already learned, what they already know. So once they learned about these specifics of this, you know, events, they can deductively and inductively, that's what we use the word, learn the core, the core problem of this specifically historical event. So... Yes, the teachers had to give them the very basic information about, you know, what was going on back then, where it locates and who are the, the actors and all those things. But at the same time, it's more like a theoretical, like a meta level. It was like an analogy of what they have learned in the racial history, what they have learned in gender history, what they have learned in all those discrimination and social injustice. It was not easy, but
0: it was not too challenging. What did you do to actually develop the curriculum? And was there testing? Were there certain benchmarks you had to reach? How did you go about putting together something that was solid enough and clear enough that it could then be proposed to not just the teachers, but perhaps the school as well?
3: So we approached to the teachers in April or May in 2021. They loved the idea. And we would like to do something together. We would like to develop a curriculum together. But at the same time, neither Yuki or I are very familiar with elementary school pedagogy. So that part had to be done by teachers. To do that, first four of us meet very regularly throughout the summer to fall and actually Teachers themselves didn't know much about Hiroshima and Nagasaki or whole nuclear issues, so the Yuki provided a workshop to educate teachers first. Based on that, with their teachers' professional knowledge about pedagogy, and then especially they applied how they created the curriculum for critical race theory or racial histories or all those social justice units. They applied to that and they proposed this pedagogy called structured academic controversy. We didn't know about it before, but that was a perfect way to engage students. That is like a debate. So you divide students into two groups and for one group to collect evidence about this specific issues from the supporting position and the other group collecting the evidence from the opposing positions. And based on those evidence, each groups constructs the arguments and they present each other. But the difference between the debate is that the purpose is not to determine the winner of the debate. But it's more like they investigate the both sides of arguments based on the evidence. And then the finally, with those two sides of arguments, they have a discussions and then find the the consensus, the group consensus. So it could be just you know one side take it or it could be like a combination of both sides that it doesn't matter. But the po- point is, they really investigate from the various angles to this very complicated issues. So for social science, the prompt was, should the United States have used the atomic weaponry against Japan? And for science, should the U.S. use nuclear energy as a solution for climate change? Those prompts, students divided into two groups, and supporting and opposing, and they collected all those evidence.
0: That's such a brilliant program. I wish we could institute it in Congress. So you worked through the summer and the fall to come up with what would work with a curriculum. Could this just be started by the teachers without any involvement or oversight by the school? Or did they have to go through some sort of procedure to get it approved before they could try it out in the classroom?
3: Because there are not very set required curriculum for social science and science, to put it in another way, they have more freedom to try out whatever they want to do. And then because the school is very supportive with the social justice issues anyway, so they were
0: just free. I understand that while this program was being implemented this past spring, the two of you have the ability to go into the classroom and observe. What was going on there? Yuki, can you fill us in on that?
1: Sure. Aiko and I visited three sessions all together. This pilot version was two weeks altogether in May, and we were lucky to visit three sessions by Ms. Kibble White and Ms. glackman's and i'm just so proud i'm so blown away by the discussions that the students have they are sixth graders and i provided some materials to the teachers during the workshop and teachers are actually using those materials some are from my workshop some are from their own research but one of the articles is Elaine Scarry, who is a scholar, and there is an article entitled Racist Foundation of Nuclear Architecture. And one of the students was using this term during the discussion. You know, we have to think about the racist foundation of nuclear architecture. And I was totally blown away. So the discussion level was very high and there were four or five different groups in one classroom. And there is one group which was actually supporting dropping the bomb. But even so, when other groups were making good arguments, they were supporting it. And the conclusion was everyone was saying we shouldn't have dropped the bomb. So that was the kind of consensus. But they were definitely touching upon what Aiko was talking about, race issues. And they were very aware and keen of those issues from their everyday life experiences. So it was easier for them to make connections, that structural issues of the nuclear industries. So that was very very moving. And another session, we made paper cranes, but it was not just, you know, we were having fun for folding paper cranes. We were providing the history of paper cranes, which is Sadako's story, but also ABCC story. This is an institution which was originally established by the US government in 1946 in Hiroshima 47 in Nagasaki, Atomic Bomb Casualty Commission. And they were the, basically what they do is to collect the data, but not healing those hibaksha, the sufferers of the bombing and how that ABCC, what they do is to collect the data to prepare for possible nuclear attacks on the U.S. and kind of a part of military strategies and quote-unquote national security sort of project and other experimental experiments that was done in the U.S. as well. So that was what was discussed in conjunction to folding paper cranes. And the third session was Ms. Gluckman's nuclear energy. And I think there is a good episode that Ico can share with us.
3: Overall, they really understood the dangers and risk of nuclear energy and uh, the radiations, health hazards. They are aware of it, so it's not like they're you know, yes, that's a great alternative for energy solutions. But, but at the same time, one of the arguments they said was because nuclear energy is supplied very steadily. Unlike solar power or unlike wind power, nuclear energy is very uh, stable. So that's why we have to make use of it to some extent. And I was I was trying to be you know quiet, you know, just observing their debate, so that you know, I don't want to influence them too much. But that was the only time I kind of like intervened. That yeah, it's a stable, but who provides the uranium? Who mines them? Who refines them? and why it keeps coming. It's not just coming, you know, by itself, but someone actually doing that job. And those people, those, you know, someone who are doing that job for us, and do they have a health hazard? Are they exposed to more danger than us who are end users of those nuclear energy? How about that? And then they stopped it. And so, It was not just about the energy, but they really go moving on to environmental justice issue.
0: It sounds extensive, informative, challenging, and it sounds like these kids really rose to the issue. One point, was this a Chicago public school or was this a private school? It is Chicago public school. And
3: that was actually the one thing I really wanted to emphasize, because so University of Chicago is uh, in the birthplace of nuclear energy, and the University of Chicago has their own elementary k to twelve school called Lab School. And a few years ago, I think this you know seventy five years anniversary, the students of lab school, the elementary school students, they went to the sculpture by Henry Moore titled Nuclear Energy, just outside of University of Chicago Library that actually commemorate the birth of nuclear energy. It's open for interpretation. It's a very abstract sculpture. So itself cannot really tell it's celebrating the nuclear energy or, you know, it's condemning it. We cannot really tell it. But in that anniversary year, lab school students, the private school students went there and they have like a commemoration. They have some ceremony-ish gathering, But that was only about achievement, scientific achievement, benchmark advancement of science. So as far as I read in the stories, they didn't really talk about the bombings or the victims or the radiation exposures and all those negative histories and discourses. So that's why I really want to emphasize the significance of our program happened in a public school. Most of the students are not as privileged as the students in the private schools. Most of them are Black students. The school, this curriculum happened, 80% of Black students. Most of them are economically disadvantaged households. So for them, this learning happened. I really want to emphasize the
0: significance of I want to move this along because there's been what could be an amazingly fortuitous development in the state of Illinois. And that is that last year, in response to the increase of attacks on Asian people, which happened especially during COVID, that there were racial attacks, that there were many difficulties that came up. Last year, Illinois passed what's called the TEACH Act, which stands for Teaching Equitable Asian American Community History. How does the TEACH Act possibly interact with the curriculum that you have already developed? Directly
3: related to our curriculum, our project, one of the major promoter of this TEACH Act is an organization called Asian American Advancing Justice. We call them AJ, and they are the one who actually wrote the law and then worked with legislators and do all those works to make it happen. We have a partnership with AAAJ. So AAAJ puts together all resources for teachers to teach the curriculums under TEACH Act. And we approach them to ask them to incorporate our program under their resource list. So TEACH Act specifically said that it is Asian American histories. Although our curriculum, it's not necessarily only about Asian American history because it started from a very different place. However, A J, it's not only about, it has to be Americans it's all about Asian communities and it's all about advancing justice. So they are very understanding. They're very willing to make a partnership with us. And also Yuki provided how, if the teachers wants to do this curriculum, Specifically under this Asian American perspective, Yuki provided the information and historical resources about how Hiroshima was the sender of immigrants to America. So because of this order after that, so many Asian Americans went back to Hiroshima and there they encountered the bombings.
1: So in terms of the umbrella of Japanese American history, As Aiko was talking about, Hiroshima produced the most immigrants to North America. However, after 1929, the Great Depression, many Issei immigrants, they saw no hope, especially because they didn't have rights to own the land and, of course, the vote and everything. So they didn't see much hope for themselves as well as for their kids. So many of them sent back their kids to the place where they were from, which is Hiroshima often the time. And most of them were also stuck after 1941, the war broke out between the US and Japan. There was only one ship, exchange ship between the US and Japan. So if you don't get on board, you are stuck in Japan. Consequently, Approximately 4,000 Japanese Americans were there in 1944 in Hiroshima. And we don't have the statistics for 1945, but most likely it wouldn't have much changed at the time which means 4,000 people witnessed the atomic bombing in Hiroshima, but also many people who were interned in the United States, they have relatives, families, and friends, loved ones in Hiroshima. So they must have lost people in Hiroshima as well. So that's a kind of Japanese-American history. But also at the time of the bombing, there were American POWs as well. And if we can talk about a big picture of Asian history, there were Korean people who, are, who were forced to come to Japan, either economic reasons or as a cheap labor, forced to come to Japan. So they ended up in Hiroshima. 10% of Hiroshima sufferers were from the Korean peninsula. So this was also Korean issues as well. However, those people who... Repatriated after the bombing or after the war, the national narrative in South Korea is the bomb liberated us. So those people who are not able to talk about their suffering as much because that was a kind of undermining the national narrative. And there were Chinese political dissidents in Nagasaki as prisoners. They suffered from the atomic bombing, 150 Dutch prisoners, POWs. However, another complication for this is they were called, quote unquote, Dark Dutch because they were ethnically Indonesians which also reveals Indonesia was the colony of the Netherlands. So those Indonesians were serving to the Netherlands, but then captured by the Japanese armies, brought to Nagasaki and witnessed the atomic bombing. So this is not just that, you know, what happened in this tiny archipelago, but it's actually Asian and larger historical context It needs to be situated in a larger historical context in terms of this happened under the colonial age, the colonies of Japan, but also colonies of other, quote unquote, Western countries. And so by then, we can also touch upon racist structure of nuclear architecture. So that's the broader context here.
0: How does this work with sixth graders compare with your teaching at the college level?
1: This time I'm teaching the Atom Bomb Discourse and the Atomic Age Seminar. And many students, actually, I asked them, what kind of narrative you grew up with? And most of them were saying, well, we saw the mushroom cloud and it was a necessary evil. And that's it. They don't really go under or beneath the mushroom cloud. So they have never encountered any kind of testimony or account from the perspective of underneath the mushroom cloud. So, yeah, it would be great if we can actually expand. And we are actually planning this time with the pilot program. We were just coming out of COVID. So teachers were kind of back and forth between online and in-person. They were having a hard time. So only two-week pilot. But we would like to expand. This coming spring, we would do it again, a little bit more upscaled plan curriculum.
0: Teach mandates that Asian American history be taught all the way from K through the end of high school, through 12th grade. Does that mean that the curriculum you have developed, plus wherever it can expand to, be it younger or older, is going to be part of the teaching in the state of Illinois as of the 2022-2023 school year?
3: Yes. So starting school year 2022 to 2023, all public elementary schools and high schools in Illinois is required to teach Asian American history under Teach Act. What exactly you teach is up to the school and up to teachers. So there are so many things to be taught under this. Our curriculum will be one of, you know, those, you know, available resources and choices. So as I said, we will make our curriculum and the resources available for public. So any teachers can use it, you know, just download it and, you know, copy it and can use it. So our hope is that this will go beyond this school, this will go beyond sixth graders, and eventually this will go, you know, spread around Illinois and maybe
0: beyond Illinois. Which brings me to another question. If there is a teacher outside of Illinois who would like to avail themselves of this curriculum and incorporate it in their teaching, is it available to them as well?
3: Yes, of course. So our website is up there and the TEACH AAA, Asian American Advancing Justice, the list of teaching resources under TEACH Act is also public under their website, so anybody can open it, anybody can access it, anybody can download it.
0: And there's no charge for it? Of course not. Of course not. (laughs) So with your curriculum on nuclear issues being just one of many that are available, is there an ethical way that listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat might advocate for this being one of the units, one of the curricula that is used? as part of the TEACH Act? And if so, what would be an appropriate way for them to do so?
1: That's a good question. First of all, a friend of mine in Oregon is talking to her group, and they started having this conversation that if they can implement a similar curriculum in their region. So I'm very excited and I'm looking forward to seeing it being developed. So anyone can teach and I would be happy to provide as much resources available or I could provide, but it would be difficult because we were not able to regulate how to teach. So of course, the materials are available, but we were not able to sort of regulate what kind of outcomes we would expect. But we are hoping that we are very much concerned about This is not just the um, historical event irrelevant to us, but it's actually very much environmental issues, uh, gender, sexuality issues, all those issues that touches upon every aspect of our lives. That's sort of our undertone of the project.
0: Parents, interested individuals, motivated individuals would be free to get in touch with their local school, especially if they're parents, and say, you know, we found out that this is part of the curriculum that's available under the TEACH Act, and we really think it's important for you to take a serious look at this and incorporate it in the school because it has so much to say about our modern life. That would be a step that people could take if they were so moved to do. We did at the first pilot program
3: this spring and after that i heard the parents of some students who participated in this pilot and they were very happy with the curriculum that was very eye-opening um, not only for students but also for parents as well because they didn't learn about this either so they learned a lot from their kids important informations to critically examine the history of their own country as well so it's just like the columbus and indigenous people's day that's debate so now i think there is a big current the nationwide big current to critically re-examine the history of this country and how it's been understood how it's been narrated until now and so they situate this nuclear history unit in that current as well. So for them, it was very fascinating to learn these things. And they were also frustrated they didn't learn about this until now. So, yes, I would say if you learn about this you know, if you think, you know, this is a cool thing. So, yeah, actually, one parent used this word cool, so this was a very cool thing that my son did in this classmate and she shared it on her Instagram you know look at look at this this was a cool thing they did if any parents listening to this or reading about our story and thought you know this is a cool thing to do the resources are available and our website is there and we are very happy to talk with you so anytime you know if you could reach out to us we are happy to help make it
0: happen at your school too I will, of course, be listing all of the necessary contact information on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode. What you have done is provide a ray of hope towards the future in terms of people understanding about nuclear, because my belief is that once they understand, they will act to end it. For now, Yuki Miyamoto and Aiko Kojima Hibino, Thank you so much, not only for the work that you have done, but for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat.
1: Thank you so much for having us.
0: Thank you very much. It was an honor. Thank you. Dr. Yuki Miyamoto is a professor at DePaul University, where she teaches nuclear discourse and environmental ethics. And Aiko Kojima Hibino is a board member of Raise Your Hand for Illinois Publication. Together with two sixth grade teachers, They developed an age-appropriate curriculum for grammar school children to learn in-depth analysis of atomic bomb drops on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The two school teachers who worked with Yuki and Aiko are social science teacher Jessica Kibblewhite and science teacher Laura Gluckman, both sixth-grade teachers at the National Teachers Academy in Chicago, which is a public school. Now, if you parents out there want to encourage your school to incorporate a cool, as you heard it called, curriculum on nuclear, check out the resources to the TEACH website and some articles on this curriculum. They're going to be linked at nuclearhotseat.com under this episode number 589. And time for some activism on your part, parents. If any of you out there want to encourage your kid's school to incorporate a cool curriculum on nuclear. Check out the resources and then send them to this show, nuclearhotseat.com, episode number 589, so they can not only listen to this, but click on links to materials Yuki and Aiko talked about. There's also a link to our interview with Yuki Miyamoto on her experiences and perspective as a second generation hibakusha. That interview was in Nuclear Hot Seat number 528 and conducted for the 76th anniversary of the Hiroshima bombing. Activists, activists, shout out, shout-outs, shout-out. If you're looking for more detailed information about what's happening in Japan, we have two resources we want to send you to, both of which are regular inputs to Nuclear Hot Seat. The first is the Citizens Nuclear Information Center, which is edited by Caitlin Strnell. It's a bi-monthly newsletter that aims to provide English-speaking friends with up-to-date information on the Japanese nuclear industry and the movements against it. You can access a copy by going to cnic.jp/english. And a big shout out with deep gratitude to our friend Hervé Courtois in France. He does an astonishing job translating news stories from Japanese to English and posting them throughout the week on his blog, dunrenard.wordpress.com. Actually, dunrenard, which means a fox. Hervé is a primary source in my weekly reports on Japan, and we often link to his articles from the website as the information he provides does not always appear in English anywhere else. There will be links up to both Citizens Nuclear Information Center and Hervé's blog on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 589. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, October 4, 2022. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, donrenard.wordpress.com, see, he's right up there at the beginning, beyondnuclear.org, nears.org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, the International Atomic Energy Agency, Ed Lyman of the Union of Concerned Scientists, Dr. Paul Dorfman, cnic.jp, washingtonpost.com, cnn.com, telegraph.co.uk, MSN.com, Global.ChinaDaily.com, Counterpunch.org, Japantimes.co.jp, Asahi.com, Aawsat.com, Marianne Wildart at WordPress.com, Delano.lu, TheTimes.co.uk, Chalkbeat.org, WashingtonExaminer.com, and the captured and compromised by the industry they are supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. As ever, our thanks to Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear for her weekly Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. If you'd like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, we make it so easy. You can sign up at any of your favorite podcasting sites or cut to the chase. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the yellow box, put in your first name and email address, and every week, shazam! You get one email with the link to the show and a short description of the content. That is the best way to make certain that you never miss another episode of Nuclear Hot Seat ever again, because you know those nukesters, the story changes and expands every week. So if you've got a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we really need your help, and anything you can do, we will really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. Cite the program, the website, you're good to go. This is Libby Halevi producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you that we can always come up with the date that a nuclear emergency begins, but we can never come up with a date that it's over, because once it starts, it is never over. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call, so don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the Nuclear Hot Seat.